Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I finally got both halves of a handicap, right? So that's something, isn't it? I'll say it is. Because no one else is here to talk to me, so I can pretty much say whatever I want. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday to you all. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, a sports ethos presentation. I think this is off-season episode number 46 now, so uh, rolling up on the 50 marker. Thank you again, everybody that's listening this off-season. It remains crazy to me that the off-season growth has been this substantial, sort of off-season over off-season, but I am uh, most appreciative of it. Thank you. Really, thank you all. Let's uh, let's keep it going. We got a finals game to break down. We've got the uh, team breakdown, which today is doubles. Getting my order right on things. A lot hanging in the balance on the bull side. Mostly settled on what happens to Zach Levine, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, two two finals. Fun one so far. That last ball game was actually competitive. I know the Warriors ended up winning by 10, but that game was tight the whole way through. Celtics were up five or six. Warriors were up three. It bounced back and forth. Golden State hit those last few shots. Mostly Steph. On the offensive side, it was mostly Steph. He had 43 of their 107. Clay was decent. And Wiggins, who, you know, wasn't great on offense, but had 16 16 devastating rebounds. The Warriors bounced back after getting hammered on the glass in the previous game, out-rebounded the Celtics 55-42. to I thought the Warriors would cover. I didn't know if they would win. They did. I thought it would go under. It did. So I've had the totals right through the first four games. Over, under, over, under. And I think this last one, the first over I was pretty confident in, and it, uh, it's, it got there easily. And then the second game, that under, I liked a lot. Third game, I, I don't know that I had much of anything on that one. Uh, leaned very gently to the over, and it made it. And then this one, I had a pretty good lean to the under. Because I figured that last ball game, you saw the Warriors screw up so many rebounds that allowed those Celtics just a couple second chance opportunities. And that was enough to push a game, by the way, that started, we're talking game three right now, really fast and then ground to a screeching halt at the very end, which isn't surprising. That's the way that these hyper-intense playoff games tend to go. It's, it's mostly all of them. I mean, this last one, 55 points in the first quarter, 48 in the second. That was a little bit just not great shooting. 54 in the third, and then 47 in the fourth quarter. So fourth quarter is sort of the, that's the one that makes all the difference. And if you look at the previous game that went over by two points, cannot believe it only barely got there. That one went 55, 69, 58, and then 34 points in the fourth quarter. So I look at that one that just barely squeaked up and over the total and thought, oh my goodness. Okay, so if these teams are going to shoot this well and play that fast through the first three quarters, and it's still barely going to get there. That's why we like the under in game four. All that to say, I don't have a freaking clue what to do with the total here in game five. It's set at 210.5 right now, down from 212, the opening number. Warriors favored by four. Not surprisingly, public likes the over. 
because at 210, it does seem like those teams can get there. And based on the number of possessions in the last ball game, it looks like it should get there. Boston had about 109 possessions in that ball game. Warriors had uh, a blistering, like 115. But some of that, not only the pace, yes, that game got going a little bit quick, which of course plays a little bit better into the Warriors' hands, even though it still went under because the Celtics couldn't shoot and the Warriors got all those second chance opportunities and there were still 31 turnovers and not that many free throws. There's sort of a lot of things in game five that do point towards the game going over. But at the same time, I do wonder, and this is a weird thing to wonder out loud because like to bet on the weird do situation is a bad way to handicap. But Steph has been so, so good through these playoff games so far particularly here against Boston, 34-29, 31-43 in those games. On 48-43, 55, and then 54% shooting. He's been terrific, efficient. He's done it all. He has eight steals in those games. He has 25 rebounds in those four games. He's been incredible. Is he potentially kind of due to have a game where he's just not quite as incredible? On offense, or is he just on one of those heaters and there's nothing anyone can do to stop him? The reason that the handicap has almost come down to what can Steph do is that as you look at everyone else in this setup, Clay's been fine, but Boston's not going to give him the airspace to get the shots he wants. Wiggins is not that great. He'll be a little more open because they know they can sag off a little bit more with him, but he's not a guy the Celtics are all that worried about. And so for the Warriors, Steph's carrying the offensive load. On the Boston side, Warriors have kind of shown the Celtics a lot of things, and they're working. Boston isn't getting great looks on offense. They're getting average looks on offense, and they need the non-studs to continue to do lifting because Jason Tatum has been held mostly in check in this series so far. That last ballgame... Jalen Brown started hot, cooled off. He was fine. But most of the Celtics didn't shoot the ball very well in Game 4. They were still right there, thanks to their own good defense on everybody not named Steph. And if they had rebounded, then the Celtics probably would have won that ball game. It's coming down to rebounding. So I think you're going to see a lot on both sides focus on rebounding, which slows the game down. Fewer players crashing the glass. And if the Warriors do crash the glass... What's the punishment going to be? So you have to look at kind of the, the adjustments. Okay, if Boston gets those defensive rebounds instead of the Warriors getting offensive looks, can they run? Boston hasn't done a great job of running in this series because, frankly, that's not the kind of game they want. And so the Warriors finally said, all right, fine. If you guys are just going to force the tempo that slow, if you're going to try to grind this thing out and you're not going to punish us, when we're not as set back on defense, we're going to crash the glass more. So you're going to see Boston either, one, try to run more in this ballgame, or two, bring even more people back to rebound. And unfortunately, because I don't have someone in the Celtics locker room, I don't know which direction they go. Based on their identity, I would say they probably do more rebounding, but we just don't know for sure. And so you're kind of handicapping, okay, Does Boston try to put more pressure on the Warriors 
and force them out of the glass crashing, or do they just sort of try to beat them at rebounding? Those are the two ways you look at this thing, which makes both the, the, certainly the total, which is something I've really enjoyed handicapping in this series so far, kind of a coin flip for this ballgame. Because Boston focuses on rebounding and slows the game down, and Warriors don't get those offensive boards, fewer possessions. If the Celtics try to push the pace, both teams start running a ton of possessions. And then the shooting probably goes with it. So I think this is going to be a really polarized game from a total standpoint. You'll see what adjustments the teams make in the first few minutes, first maybe seven or eight minutes of the ball game, and then you'll know, is this thing going to be like 235 or is this thing going to be like 198, the total? I would go slightly into the under. I'm not playing it. No, am I not playing it? Because I think Steph doesn't shoot quite as well. I think Boston does try to keep this thing slower. But at the same time, I really I really don't know. I'm out of my depth with this total. We got the first four right in a row, which is pretty cool, but not this one. I don't know. And then as far as the side goes, I think that's a bit of a coin flip as well. Boston's played well on the road. Warriors have played well at home. What's going to give? If Steph is off, does that mean Boston wins? Are they going to hit all their shots like they did in game one? I don't know. The side, to me, in general, has been really, really hard in the playoffs as a whole because you get these four or five-point lines, and games sometimes are close, sometimes they're not, but everybody's winning by 8 to 12 because someone just hits a couple three-pointers in a row, and all of a sudden, it's not a close game anymore. So, a lot of that to say, I got nothing for you tonight. I got nothing. This one's a confusing handicap, I think. Maybe someone has more confidence in it than I do, but... Doubles. DeMar DeRozan, two more pretty good-sized salary years on the docket. Vooch, one more year. This is contract year for Vooch. He's going to want to make some money after that. Lonzo, three more years, assuming he exercises his player option. Caruso, three more years. Patrick Williams, rookie deal. Kobe White still on his rookie deal. I don't know what they do with Troy Brown. He might walk. We'll see. Derek Jones came off the books, and Zach Levine is a free agent. So, right now, the Bulls' salary overall as a team does look lower than last season. But, and we know Levine's going to shop around a little bit, if he does decide to stay with Chicago, they're pretty much done. Like, there'll be a little bit that they could do around the margins, but it's going to be kind of the same look as last year. With perhaps the continued growth of Patrick Williams, who did look pretty good down the stretch, and then I don't know what that means for Alex Caruso. Let's assume for argument's sake that Levine does stay put, which is not a given, but I would argue the Bulls have the best chance to keep him. They made a lot of moves to get good players in there around him. Chicago looked pretty good for the first half of this year and then kind of ran out of steam part way. And they'll have to, I mean, they're going to have to learn how to defend a little bit better, win those tight ball games and a little more consistency, a little less reliance on DeRozan to hit tough shots to win them. They're going to need more out of Vooch. All those little things are relevant. But from a fantasy standpoint, they were unbelievably predictable. Aside from, like, a couple of stream-level questions, this team, we knew exactly what we were going to get out of them. When Lonzo Ball was healthy, first half of the year, he was really, really good. Better than I think any of us could have expected. We all thought probably, like, top 50 And he was number 25 before the injury. 
mostly because 2.7 combined defensive stats and three three-pointers. 13 points, three threes, five and a half boards, five assists, good defensive stats, bad field goal percent. Yeah, that's always going to be a thing. Free throw number is now up to a respectable clip. I don't know, however, how you could possibly draft Lonzo in a head-to-head league. I don't even know how you can draft him in a Roto League unless he falls pretty far. Which he might, but I don't know if it'll be far enough. So let's just kind of wipe Lonzo Ball off the map. Which sucks, but I think we do kind of have to do it. Because he's shown himself to be a guy that just isn't healthy. He's not. He's been in the NBA for five seasons now. And he got close to healthy in the COVID year. The COVID-shortened year, I should say. Not the scheduled shortened season, the COVID shortened season. First year with the Lakers, 52 out of 82. Second year with the Lakers, 47 out of 82. In New Orleans, 63 out of 72, so got closer that time. Last year, 55 out of 72. This year, 35 out of 82. And he was good. Mind you, he was very good this year. He had his highest combined defensive stat total. Since his rookie year, basically, blocks were back up. Steals have always been very good for Lonzo. Best field goal percent of his career at 42 and change, which, by the way, has actually been very slowly creeping up, and a lot of that was because he made more of his three-pointers despite f- fewer attempts. Free throw numbers been better the last two seasons. And then rebounds, assists, those stayed pretty much intact. Scoring was down ever so slightly. But, I mean, look at that total. I'm not going to run all the numbers out for you, but missing 30, 35, 9, 17, and 47 games is kind of a tough pill to swallow. And I get it. We have to talk about this every time we bring up games played. Injured guys sometimes have healthy years. Healthy guys sometimes have injury-prone years. But when a guy has missed large, not medium, large chunks of games in three of his five seasons... More than average in one of the remaining two. And only one out of five years has the player you're talking about played at or above the health of the average fantasy player. He's injury prone. I know it's not set in stone. But if I said to you, 80% chance this dude misses more than the league average number of games, you'd say, all right, well, the other side is going to happen, but more often than not, if I'm handicapping this, I'm going to assume he misses too many games. And it's not like he's at, you know, he had last year 55 out of 72. That one you can kind of swallow because it's like, what, three, four, maybe five games more than the league average missed. And his third season, nine was good. But the other ones, those are massive numbers. 30, 35, and 47 That's an unplayable number of games missed. This is a guy who you drafted potentially in the fourth, fifth, sixth round, whatever. It doesn't matter. Even with the good per-game numbers, if you don't even play half the year, it's not worth it. We've talked about this with a guy like Christoph Porzingis. You need him to get to, like, two-thirds of the season, which would be about 27, 54 out of 82. Somewhere in that neck of the woods. 27, 27, 27. Gets you close. 
54.67. Am I doing that right? Probably. I don't know. I didn't have a calculator out. So 55, you can round it up. That's a guy. If you draft Lonzo at like 60 and he's a, a top 30, 35 guy, you need 55 games out of him. That's going to be your target mark. And again, you can't do it in head-to-head. That's not going to be enough. I know the totals would work out from a math standpoint, but that only makes sense on the Roto side. Roto is all math. Head-to-head is a little bit math, but largely when. The when factor complicates things. What about the other guys on the Bulls that had registered fantasy seasons this year? DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, Zach Levine, Alex Caruso, before he got hurt, he just wasn't the same when he came back. For very brief stretches, Patrick Williams looked pretty good kind of towards the end of the year. He played like, what, 15 games down the stretch, and he was fine, like top 150 kind of thing as he was getting his legs back underneath him. Here's the thing. I am kind of... I know this makes me a little bit of a of a public play, so to speak. I don't know what's happening here. I've lost... Uh, lost the page that I was working on um with Patrick Williams I I definitely see the outlines of a really interesting basketball player I just don't see how there's enough out there as long as those other four guys are all still around and even Kobe White who like this isn't a good fantasy player but he's still on the team next year and he's still gonna be a guy who takes more shots Patrick Williams took six shots in 25 minutes per game this last year. DeMar DeRozan, 20. Levine, 18. Vooch, 16. Lonzo, 11. Kobe White, 11. And some of those numbers are a little bit muddied because of Lonzo missing 47 ball games. But Io DeSunmu got a bunch of playing time. He took seven shots a game. Caruso, 6.3. These guys all had a higher, and I get it. There are factors who missed time, who got the extra shots because of it, that pushed uh, Williams down as low as this was, but he's just not an aggressive offensive player yet. So you're going to need more than half a steal and half a block. You're going to need more than four rebounds. Even if you ratchet his minutes up by another 20%, you're still talking about five rebounds, 0.7 and 0.7 basically in steals and blocks. Less, actually be less, I gave him too many. You could ratchet his minutes up by what? If you took him from 25 to 30? Yeah, I guess that's a 20% bump, isn't it? I'm just not seeing it as this thing's currently constructed. If he somehow lands a 32-minute roll on a younger team, or if Levine doesn't come back, and then, you know, Lonzo isn't ready to go, or DeRozan has to miss a few ball games, okay. But that's too many guys to be behind in the pecking order. I hope that the road opens up for him. He's good, and he'll be fun, I think, one day. But, man, that's a logjam if you're trying to squeeze anybody else through past all those big names. DeMar DeRozan had a stellar fantasy season this year. Stellar. Number 26 on a per-game basis, which, by the way, down. He was in the teens for a long stretch this year, uh, but did kind of slow down a little bit down the stretch. He was more like top 50 the last month and a half, two months, mostly because he was shooting 47% over that span uh, instead of 51%. 
But either way, it, it really doesn't matter how you slice it. This was a fantastic year for DeRozan. And it probably does now, finally, mush him outside what we've been... <laughs> I still need to come up with a better name for it. But the DeMar DeRozan or the Tobias Harris honorary fantasy list of guys who always get drafted between 45 and 60 and are always in that 45 to 60 range or maybe a tiny bit better... Because they're durable and they're predictable. Ah, I love durable and predictable. It's not a fun way to play fantasy, but damn it, it's a lucrative one. This is probably the year that that gets screwed up. Because for the last, I don't know how many years, DeMar's been drafted between 45 and 60. And every year he sits right there between 45 and 60 and plays league average number of games or maybe a couple extra. Mind you, uh, last couple years being kind of goofball but then he comes out and plays 76 games this year so super durable I told you 26 by by uh average number nine by totals this season brilliant one of the best picks from a especially in head-to-head in fantasy this year because this is a guy you got in the fifth round by totals that ended up as a first rounder that's a huge huge jump but even if you talk about fifth round per game you got him at like the second, third round turn production. So still really good. But combine that overperformance with the durability and you end up one of the best picks of the year. It's hard then to get underdrafted after being one of the best picks of the year. The only guy I can remember in recent memory that's pulled that feat off is Chris Paul repeatedly because everybody just keeps calling him old and washed. And no one believes that after that season in Houston that he could ever sort of get back to Chris Paul, but now he's done it for three seasons running, OKC and a couple in Phoenix. At some point, that one's going to tip back the other way. And every year, I'm like, surely Chris Paul is going to get drafted too early this season, and then it just doesn't happen because he keeps getting older. Oh, I almost walked right into it, guys. I almost walked right into a McConaughey moment. The problem is I don't stay the same age. We also, I also continue to get older. Chris Paul now... Uh, Chris Paul was born in 85. Actually, just had a birthday. So he's 37. And the reason that he keeps getting drafted late is people are like, oh, he's 36. Then he's not going to be able to do it again at 36. Oh, he's 37. He's not going to be able to do it again at 37. Uh, DeRozan isn't quite that old. Without looking, I'm fairly certain he's a, a hair younger. Yeah, born in 89. So he'll be 33 in uh, in two months. So that's a pretty big difference. And with that in mind, I think that as you look towards next year, someone's going to be like, okay, look, I know DeMar is probably more towards the downslope on things, but it's not Chris Paul level, which didn't actually occur. I'm just sort of saying out loud what I think a lot of people are going to say. They're going to say, all right, DeMar's still 33. He could do that again. And he probably gets drafted in the third round this coming year, which sadly is probably too early. Unless we think he goes 76 out of 82 games again, which, I don't know, maybe. But, like, to me, as I looked at this last season, Chicago made the playoffs in the traditional sense. The only thing less left for them to do from the regular season standpoint is home court, which might have helped them. They were 27-14 and 14 at home, 19-22 and 22 on the road this year, so they were definitely a better home team. But I really get the feeling that they just want to be better against the best. They want to be able to just go beat a playoff team 
whether they're at home or on the road. And so I don't know, unless they're in jeopardy, and they might be, because there are a lot of good Eastern Conference teams which pushes pushes good teams down into the play-in tournament. They're going to want to dodge play-in, which they did by two games over the Nets this year, but Brooklyn's going to be better. I don't know. I don't see the Raptors, Sixers, Bucks, Celtics, or Heat slowing down very much. So they'll have something to do during the regular season to stay in front of that seven seed. But at the same time, if there's a game where DeMar is a little bit nicked up, he's just not going to play. So I don't know about 76 games of him again for DeMar. He might beat his ADP by totals again next season. I don't think he beats his ADP on a per-game basis. I just, I, I've, I, I don't see how he could possibly be any better than he was this last year, assuming Zach Levine is still with the Bulls. Because this was the highest scoring season of DeMar DeRozan's career. Even more than that late one in Toronto, where he had 27.3. He had 27.9 points per game. Unreal efficiency. The free throws were still a huge positive for him. Rebounds, assists were still decent. Around a steal, that's never been the big thing for him. There's just no way for him to get better. And as we talked about, even if he only shoots two or three percentage points worse on that massive volume, if you turn a positive impact category into kind of a neutral category, you do drop him down a round and a half. So DeMar probably closer to 40 on a per-game basis next year, based on my current handicap, again, with Zach Levine on the team. And if he gets drafted in the mid-30s, probably doesn't get there per game, might get there by totals. It's not a horrible decision, but I don't know if it's the best one. Nikola Vucevic ended up shooting 47% this year, which I think is going to blow some people away because he was a lot lower than that for long stretches. And it just looked like it was going to be a total disaster of a year from a field goal percent standpoint. And then it turned out to be, you know, kind of average. The problem, of course, was, and we talked about this, he took a hit in usage. Usage is value. Last season with Chicago, after he got traded there from Orlando, he took 19 shots a game, 5.83 pointers he took per ball game. Still didn't get to the free throw line very much. Averaged 21.5 points, 11.5 rebounds, 4 assists, 0.9 steals, 0.8 blocks. What do you think stayed the same this year from that end of season with Chicago? Rebounds stayed almost exactly the same. He was at 11 instead of 11.5. Steals, 1, same. Blocks, one, pretty much the same. Everything else, down. Usage down from 19 shots to 16. Three-pointers down from 5.8 to 4.5. Assists down from four to closer to three. He basically took almost, almost a 25% hit in some categories and around 20% across the board, basically. Little bit less than that in field goal attempts, but basically 20% hit in all usage categories. So when you're like, oh, well, there's only one ball, and that's a kind of a dumb sentiment to have, teams tend to figure it out. Someone's going to lose a few shots. And for whatever reason, I mean, the reason was because he made them all, it wasn't DeMar DeRozan this year, it was the other guys. So as good as Vooch was and as consistent as he was when you roll it over year over year over year, 
Lately, he's been about a 47, 48% field goal guy because he's added so many three-pointers into the mix. Everything usage-related dinged him from being a guy that has been historically kind of around the turn when things are going well to a guy who was about 15 slots later. That's right what we said during draft season. He's going to take a hit. I don't know exactly how big it's going to be. Maybe you argue it's a small one, but it's a hit. This is Vooch with these guys around him. Maybe he has a slightly better shooting season next year. Could that push him from number 29 up to like 24, 25? Absolutely. Maybe he's an end of second, early third grab. But that's where, I mean, he was going earlier than that this last year. And it's funny, we're always a year late, I want to say we, the fantasy community at large is a year late on Vooch almost every single time. He was getting drafted like in the late 20s in his last season in Orlando, and then he was near, what, 11? And then he got drafted in the mid-second round this year, and he was around back of that. Now he'll probably go later, and he'll probably shoot a little better, and he'll maybe move right in front. I don't know. Either way, I would expect Vooch to go towards the second, third round turn, and I'm kind of okay with him being drafted in that range. That's probably where he belongs. And finally, among the big namers, Zach Levine who I've also been a little bit bearish on. And last year, I didn't go high enough on Zach. He had a fantastic season because he shot the daylights out of the basketball last year. Uh, And he was number 22 on a per-game basis on 19.5 shots per game, five free throws he attempted. Those were big-time positive impact stuff. 27.5 points, 3.5 threes, five boards, five assists, 0.8 steals, 0.5 blocks. Fast forward one year, DeMar DeRozan comes to town. Things are different. It's just what happens. Shot attempts down from 19.5 to 17.5. It's only a 10% drop, but it's a drop. Scoring down by about 10%. Three-pointers down by about 10%. Assists down by about 10%. Oddly, free throws were up. Can't quite figure that one out. Just apparently got better at getting to the foul line. Field goal percent was down a little bit, uh, but probably more in line with what we ought to expect from him because he had that just an amazing shooting season. And it wasn't like it was a bad year for Levine. He played in 67 out of their 82 ball games, which is basically league average. He was number 46 on a per-game basis, and that's where I thought he would be the previous year, and he blew it away. And then this year, everybody was taking him at, like, 20, and I thought, eh, I don't know, man. We got to factor in the DeMar hit. Not Alonzo hit, a DeMar hit. It didn't get factored in. He'll get overdrafted this year because he scores a lot, which I you, you would think that that would be the thing for DeMar DeRozan, but I think that hasn't ever really been on DeMar because he doesn't hit three-pointers, and so people are like, oh, well, there's this thing he doesn't do. Um, Zach Levine's defensive stats will probably be a little bit better next year, so I do think there's a chance that he ends up better than 46 on a per-game basis, but he ain't getting back into the low 20s with these guys around him. If he goes somewhere else, we can obviously redo the handicap there. But as long as he stays in Chicago, pretty this, I think, is what you can expect. What's to change? Maybe the Bulls get a healthy Lonzo ball. I'm sure they feel like they can do a whole hell of a lot more if Lonzo's out there. He was making them tick in the, in the early going. DeMar was doing the offensive stuff. Lonzo was orchestrating some of the defensive stuff. Good passer. Everybody on the floor was a good passer. I don't know that they can rely on him to make it through the year, but I think they are hoping he'll be around come playoff time. 
So there's a lot of weird story stuff going on with Chicago. They want to be in good position, good enough, out of the play-in, but I don't think they're worried about getting everybody, you know, trying to rack up 55 wins. I think they'd rather be healthy the first round of the playoffs. And then at the same time, we've now kind of seen what this group is. And for that reason, and by the way, I'm not drafting Alex Caruso, even though he did have a, a good season. I just, again, I think if everybody's around, can he hold close to two steals per ball game? I don't know, maybe. But there's a lot of other guys that are be pushing him at that point. Sure, you could, you know, you could go Caruso with your last pick, something like that. It's just not a whole lot of upside there. Um, DeMar DeRozan, probably ever so slightly overdrafted, but I think close enough to say it'll be fine. Lonzo, too dangerous. Vooch, probably about accurately drafted. And Levine, I'm thinking probably overdrafted. So there isn't much in the way of guys to sort of put on our little list on the Chicago Bulls, the guys that we're semi-watching to see how they do going into next year and, and kind of prep for them. I think the Bulls, you'll have a few guys that just sort of fall onto your team every once in a while, but it, yeah, no real key targets for values. By the way, a trade happened today in the NBA. Jamichael Green was traded from the Nuggets to the Thunder, and some picks went flying around between the two clubs. I'm sure the Thunder will try to move him, um, but if they don't, he could end up being kind of a, another veteran rehab project out there. We'll keep an eye on that. It's not something that you need to be like, oh, sweet, Jamichael Green, I'm going to take him at 100 now. Because even if they do play him, it won't be all year long anyway. This is more about money than anything else. But, again, you know, we've seen it before, Al Horford and the like, even Chris Paul, if you want to talk, go talk about guys that have come through OKC, shown they've got good stuff in the tank. I don't think Jamichael Green needs to prove that he's still like, young enough to have stuff in the tank. I think he's still in his 20s. I'm not even going to bother to look this one up. This isn't about a veteran rehabilitation project. This is about absorbing money into a cap that was open, that is then, for the Thunder, they're hoping to turn the 30th pick in this year's draft into something earlier, five years down the line, basically. But who knows? Maybe Jamichael Green gets in there and gets 20-some-odd minutes a game, and on that team, that might actually be enough. But just, again, kind of file that in the back of your brain for when we recheck a lot of teams after free agency. Still kind of cool to see a trade happen, so that was fun. Hey, guys, don't forget, go follow my guys over on the football and baseball side. Joe and JP handling the baseball and football, respectively, for Ethos Fantasy FB and Ethos Fantasy BB. I am at Dan Bespris on Twitter. This is Fantasy NBA Today Sports Ethos Presentation. Rumbling right along with off-season episode number 46. Tomorrow, it is a choice. Nuggets or Raptors? I'll pick two names out of a hat, or I'll put, pick one out of two. You'll find out tomorrow morning. Have a great Monday, everybody. Enjoy the finals game. Break that down a little bit, too. Why not? Talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>